Properties, the podcast that cuts the property industry to the bone. We answer your questions with our expert guests and call out all the bullshit that makes the industry only slightly more popular than British politics. We are your hosts, Matt Smith. And I'm Chris Erickson. And we are your Properties. Hey, Chris. Hey, Matt. How's How your week been? Not bad, not bad. What about you? Um, it's been okay. I've um, I managed to, to put my back out, which was uh, done by lifting dumbbells in our office, as you know, um, which uh, I don't know what happened, but uh, I've done something very weird to my back. And then we went to the um, International Property Award Ceremony and I had to sit in a very cold air-conditioned room in a summer tuxedo um, for five hours while we waited for the award ceremony to to come to uh, go through its motions. And by the end of it, I could barely move my neck. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's been a fun weekend with lots of um, Voltarol gel and ibuprofen. Um, but um, otherwise, been spending time just trying to get deals through um, oh, yeah. because people are already talking about Christmas parties. So as we've reached that time of year where it's um, just a, a big push. Well, at least we had some positive news today in the, in the media with regards to inflation having come down below 5%. Yeah. So that will yeah. certainly help a little bit. Definitely hang on um, to some threads of good news. Yeah. And the question is, will people actually take the plunge and do anything property related now before Christmas? As you say, the parties are in full flow. I was in Battersea Power Station this weekend. Um, for those who haven't been there, it's quite a phenomenal venue. And... As I approached the power station itself with all its commercial premises and all the lights and everything else, I totally forgot that it's not Christmas. And yet two of the biggest Christmas trees I've ever seen were on display and Christmas decoration, almost like Santa had sort of had an upset stomach and just regurgitated his entire Christmas spirit all over the power station. And it dawned on me that it was the 10th of November. Yeah, Um, it gets earlier every year. It does, yeah. When's your Christmas tree going to go up? Uh, in Sweden, we are quite sort of, um, I was going to say religious, but that's not the right word. We're very sort of um, uh, traditional, if you like. So it goes up first Sunday uh, of December, and then we count down four Advents. So we light a candle for each Sunday in up to, so leading up to Christmas. So they're so very then. early December. Yeah. So <laughs> then, yeah. I feel like I just took the last year's ones down. But um, it's got to go up. Yeah, for me, it's got to go up at the beginning of, of December because otherwise, by the time you put it up, it's time to take it down again. And it dies. Uh, well, we, we have, a, dare I say, a plastic one. But it does look very, very real. Um, in fact, I'd say more real than some of the the, the, the ones you, you buy these days, which, as you say, they die after five minutes. A, a fake Christmas tree to a Swede is like tomato ketchup to an Italian. So, uh, we'll, But like we'll everything, Chris, technology, you know, the trees <laughs> these days are more real than the real ones. Um, are we excited? About Christmas? About our uh, special guest today. Oh, very excited about our special guest. Okay, well, that brings us on to the incomparable Moshe Moses, proprietary partner at Seddens. Hello. Who joins us today. Mosh, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, guys. We're I'm, so pleased I've to been have looking you. forward to it. <laughs> Excellent. So have we. I think you are definitely going to be um, one of uh, the most interesting people to have on as guests because when it comes to property... Don't set the bar that <laughs> That's not fair. That's not fair. <laughs> but when it comes to property, it's all about the solicitor. It's well, all I seem to think so. And yeah. we've had many deals where that's proven uh, to be true. Absolutely. So, yeah, well, we're going to Mo- have a chat about that. Today. Mosh, tell us all about yourself and how you got to where you are as proprietary partner of Seddens. So I'm, a, as you just said, I'm a partner at Seddens. We're a mid-sized West End uh, law firm. We're based out of Fitzrovia. 
Um, as of uh, April this year, we actually just moved into those premises. For 35 years before that, we were operating out of Portman Square. So there's been a bit of a transition recently into a new office environment. Uh, but I've been working at the firm coming up to 15 years now. Uh, I actually trained at the firm. So the original history was, was when I was at uh, university, I was studying law. And I'll be honest with you, I found it quite dry. And it occurred to me and I was recommended to seek out a law firm and maybe do some work experience to just see what it was like on a practical basis. I reached out to Seddon's and it was one of these cases of right place, right time, because I phoned up and I was told that there was a property paralegal that in three weeks time was going traveling for two months. So actually what what started as a work experience request actually ended up in a summer job because what <laughs> happened was I joined, learned the, the trade of that paralegal for those three weeks, covered him while he was away. And I just got this massive, unbelievable exposure to what it was like working in a law firm. And that was the turning point for me because I thought, okay, this is very different to sitting in a lecture about 18th century financial crime and how it affects modern <laughs> law today, which wasn't what I was in my mind there to study, but that's what we were doing. And I tried again in the summer of my second year of uni and they said, sorry, we've got someone. So that was a, you know, a rejection. I tried again in the summer of my third year because I thought again, I've got to try it. And they said, yeah, come back. So did that again, went to law school. After law school, uh, went back to Seddon's as a paralegal for a short period of time, applied for my training contract, got the training contract there and then worked my way up to a partner. So Fantastic. it's been a long journey, but you know what? It's rare these days for someone to say, I, was gonna I say, started yeah. off as like basically photocopying yeah. and doing all that kind of menial. That's wonderful. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's so not dry as you thought it might be. Well, it's turned out to be great. Yeah. It's yeah. been an amazing experience. And just tell us a bit more about how you worked your way up to be proprietary partner, because that's quite a big deal. It's it's a, you know what I'm when I look back and I think about where I started and where I've where I now am it's an amazing for me it's a real amazing achievement because yeah. there was never a promise it wasn't a you'll come in and you'll get to the next step or you're mm. guaranteed a training contract I genuinely had to work hard for that and the truth is is that it came out of the success of my practice as a lawyer you know one of my skill sets is being able to bring in business. And obviously that's an, uh, an attractive quality for any business. Yeah. But it was, you know, coupled with good client relations, uh, a stream of work coming in and really actually genuinely enjoying the colleagues that I work with. And that's a big, big impact because actually if you're not enjoying the people that you work with, then you start questioning why you're there. You, you know, there's the pre the hybrid working model. The yeah. whole idea is, you know, you're spending more time with your colleagues than you are with your friends and family. Definitely. So yeah. that was a massive, uh, massive draw for sure. And where does the majority of um, your referrals come from? It's a real wide range. Um, historically, it started off mostly with uh, estate agents. So we would uh, do a transaction for a client. Uh, you know, it would go well. And then I would look to maintain and cultivate the relationship that I built up with the agent on that deal, which is obviously how we Absolutely. Uh, met many yeah. years ago. Uh, now it's kind of evolved because as you've been, you know, more in the game, you've been doing the job for a long time, your network tends to expand. So with me, a lot of the clients that I worked with many years ago have thankfully returned. They're very kind enough for recommending me to other people that's within their network. And it kind of just grows in that way. You know, if you keep on doing a good job, people yeah. are happy to recommend you. And that's kind of the way that it builds, builds up. 
Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I guess the answer to your question is, at the moment, I would say it's a broad range of estate agents, repeat clients or clients referring me to other clients. Yeah. Uh, and then there are other professional services. So accountants, there are private banks, um, financial advisors or mortgage brokers. Yeah. Anyone that has an impact on the property game at some point where they want to make sure that their clients looked after or they've got the best possible chance of a deal going through, uh, they're very kind enough in sending them our, our way. Uh, one, one of the reasons that we obviously love referring you is because, A, we know you're a brilliant solicitor, but also because of the where you communicate with us as agents. Um, and for us, that's that's so important. But it's interesting that a lot of solicitors aren't as communicative it's as you It's the strangest are. thing. I don't get it. I've always adopted the approach of we are a property transaction to me is you've got a willing buyer and a willing seller and a price that's been agreed, right? That's, that's the starting point. Yeah. We're not adversarial. There's no need to adopt a posturing approach. We have someone that wants to buy and someone that wants to sell. A lot of lawyers, I believe, perceive agents to be somewhat of a pest. And I'm sure you'll attest to that. Yeah. But the idea is, is like, look, you've sent me your sales memorandum. The deal's been agreed. I'll let you know once we've exchanged. Thank you very much. I've got it from here. And I never adopted that approach. For me, I always saw the agent as part of the team. We're all in this together. We all want the same thing. Yeah. And so actually, let's work together to make this happen. Absolutely. And I've always found it very strange because I think when I was in the beginning of my career, I always felt that that perception was the older lawyer that you know has been doing it for so long. And that was the historic approach that lawyers took with agents. What I always found very strange is, is that actually you come across a lot of younger, more junior lawyers that also seemingly have seemed to adopt this same approach. And I'm like, I just don't understand why. To me, we are a team, right? So if there's something that you can do in the, in the course of the transaction that will help get it across the line, I'm going to say, hey, guys, let's do this. Why don't you try that? Yeah. Let me work with you. Why don't we chase them together? You know, and that's really the difference. Do you think that that sort of disconnect that you're talking about in terms of solicitors talking to the agents is more so to do with the fact that a lot of solicitors have to teach agents about the legal framework. Um, so they get asked or, or an agent will call up and ask simple questions um, that are so basic to a lawyer that's already been uh, executed and have to repeat the same thing over and over again. I think, I think there is, there's probably an element of truth to that to some degree. I think really what I have found is that where agents don't necessarily know who is in the wrong? Mm. If you've got, wrong is probably the, the wrong expression, but let's just say, for example, you've got a legal issue that arises and you've got one lawyer saying X and you've got the other lawyer saying Y and the agent who isn't legally trained and obviously doesn't know and they shouldn't have to know, that's mm. not their job, mm. finds themselves in the middle. And that's often where they feel very, unsettled because from their perspective they've agreed the deal they just want it to go through and they don't know which who to lean on who's right who's wrong yeah. and so that's often the issue and so a lot of the chasing calls are what's going on i saw the email that came through three weeks ago why hasn't anyone replied and really that's the when i when i started working on how i operated for me and adopting the whole approach of we're a team I made sure that the agents were kept up to date. So, you know, the rule in my team is, is if an agent or a client has to email you or phones you and asks you for an update, 
you've done something wrong. They should yeah. never do that. Yeah. That's my rule. Yeah. My rule is- I love that rule. I was say, we, we, <laughs> Mosh, we love you for that rule because well, it's so unique and it makes all the difference. It does make the difference because actually if I can, if I can reassure you that it's in safe hands and you're being kept up to date, yeah. it's one less thing that you need to worry about. You can go and chase your other deals yeah. where sadly you might not have lawyers yeah. that are adopting that approach. You, you know, the, the, the way that I want my referrers to feel is, I'm gonna, you know, very kindly refer it, refer it to Moshe, and I just know that it will be looked after. Absolutely. If there's a problem, he'll work it out. We'll yeah. find a solution. We'll work on it together. And it's yeah. almost like a, a, I want it to be a sigh of relief. It's like, okay, we've got someone that knows what they're doing. We can let that run and focus our attention elsewhere. Absolutely. And you know, from our perspective, of course, knowing that we are all on the on the same team, if you like, right, means that we who we communicate with the seller or the buyer, who are constantly chasing us for an update we then have all the confidence in the world knowing that yeah. you're looking after things. I mean, we could talk endlessly for an hour or more on transactions we've done yeah. where they're out of office hours. I remember one yeah. particular transaction where when you were an associate before yeah. you made partner, you weren't able to exchange a particular deal without a partner in the office and it was out of office hours and um, you got the deal through. Um, I can't remember exactly how we did it, but it was late at night and uh, we had an incredibly satisfied client and a very happy agent. I think, you know what, that's that's the difference, right? It's trying to go that extra mile and being available. I, you know, I've exchanged for a client on a Saturday evening yeah. because yeah. they just needed to know that it was done. And that's what you're that's what you're paying for. You know, that's what you're that's the level of service that we're aiming to, to really deliver. And if more lawyers did what you did uh, in terms of what you do, which is educating us in the process, yeah. then the whole industry becomes better. Yeah. Because I don't have to worry about calling a solicitor and getting so shouted at for not knowing the legal practice when it's Which not you shouldn't have to know. That's no. not your thing, no. you know? And also, I think, I think sometimes on the legal side, it's not appreciated that the agent is getting called by the buyer and yeah, the seller saying what's going on. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, th that's why when we're able to when we know already because you've kept us up to date it's an easy answer rather than then having to send that email to this saying please update me because i'm being grilled on the other side it goes back to the rule if someone has to ask you that's our rule if yeah. someone has to ask you for an update there's been a miscommunication because i don't want that to ever come up in my deal best that's rule not, ever yeah that's the love best that. rule ever. Love that. <laughs> all right go on Chris. um so talking about your extensive career, in terms of property trends, what sort of trends are you seeing at the moment and how do they differ from previous years? Great question. We're in uh, very strange times, as we all know. Uh, yeah. The markets are very unpredictable and it's difficult to, at some stages, see the light at the end of the tunnel with you know inflation, interest rates, and I think that has to have the biggest impact. So the trends that I would say that I'm seeing at the moment are basically any transaction in terms of value between the £800,000 mark to the £3 million mark just isn't moving forward. The, the deals aren't being agreed. And because that They're bracket, not being agreed or they're just well, not? They're not being agreed. They're, the ones that are, there's a hesitation. There isn't a sense of urgency. Yeah, Things are slowing that. down. And the reason for it is that that bracket is most impacted by mortgage rates. Yeah. It, you know, it's not every transaction, of course, but most transactions within that bracket, one would expect to be aided with mortgage finance. Yeah. And so with the rates being what they are, it's very prohibitive. Yeah. And so, you know, if someone said to you, for example, 
here's a deal and you're going to have to take a million pound mortgage to to facilitate that which maybe you can on your earnings or whatever mm. is now the time for you to take on a massive mortgage yeah i think most people myself included within that bracket wouldn't be saying yeah okay let's take a massive mortgage yeah right now. yeah and i think that's ultimately the issue so in terms of a trend i i guess sadly at the moment i'm seeing a slowdown in yeah. that level of the market on the higher level of the of the market, um, at the, you know, prime, super prime, transactions are still moving forward. I would say volume is still down. So they are happening. It would be wrong to say that the whole market's at a standstill. It's not. There are deals going through. But I think that the, the level of volume isn't there as it was before. Um, but there's a greater volume at the higher level than there is at the bottom level at the moment, it would seem. And is there a demographic or, or um, uh, a particular country who you're seeing buying more things at that sort of level? That's a great question. I'll tell you why. Because I, I often get asked that. Um, and it's interesting because we're well-placed as lawyers to have a bit of a bird's eye view of the market because we're not sort of tied down to a location yeah. or you know a type of client in a way you know it comes from all different circles interestingly at the moment i'm not seeing any particular trend but i have seen for example where geopolitical in, uh, factors and influences do send, tend to affect the market. So all of a sudden you'll see a certain demographic coming through where if there's problems coming up in, in the country or there's a question of money and, and the value or whatever, you'll start seeing, even before it hits the press sometimes, an influx of people that come into London looking to invest. So for example, off the top of my head, when Greece was going through all its turmoil with its you know financial crisis, mm. before that actually started hitting mainstream news, we were seeing a lot of new Greek clients and existing Greek clients looking to place their money around. So yeah, right now, obviously, yeah. we've got we've got lots of things going on in the world mm. and it's having a massive impact on people's finances, their investment strategies, uh, where they're putting their money and how much of it. And so ultimately, I can't pinpoint and say, oh, we're seeing a certain particular demographic at the moment more than others. Yeah. But it tends, you do say, see some patterns. Uh, depending on what, what's going on around the world. Yeah, yeah. I think we're going back to what you were saying about um, people being affected by interest rates. I mean, we've we've definitely s s seen the same thing. There is, uh, hopefully, they're going to be settling. But we, I mean, we had one um, very nice lady who was buying a flat in Chelsea and she was going to finance it. And it went on and on and on um, during the conveyancing, which, which was, I don't know, like two or three months by the time it actually went through. And during that time, the rate that she was being offered by the bank kept going up. Yeah, And um, in the end, she decided just to buy it in cash because she said, you know, I don't want to be tied into a rate that's going to be Lucky lady. Level. Yeah, <laughs> Lucky well, lady. exactly. But I mean, in London, there's so many people Absolutely. like that, right? But well, it, it used mean, to make sense to take the debt. Definitely. Now no, it, it doesn't. Was, it was too... It, the debt was so cheap mm. that it wouldn't make sense to not take it. Exactly. Yeah, right. Whereas yeah. now, obviously, people really have to think twice. And so if we follow that chain through of interest rates, yeah. what I guess another trend is, is I'm seeing a lot of landlords with lower value portfolios mm. selling yeah they're selling because yeah. actually their investment property which they bought five years ago 10 years ago however long it was yeah is actually now the yield isn't worth it based on the rates the margin is being squeezed so much that it's actually costing them money to hold the property yeah and where they don't have the assurance of the capital increase because the market That's right. isn't so yeah clear in which direction it's going at the moment yeah um I'm seeing a lot of those types of sales. 
Yeah. So that's another, I guess that's another trend that we're, we're coming across. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Landlords getting out of the market is a, is which, a big trend. Which yeah. we talked about I wish I could that. get out of being a landlord because, <laughs> but I mean, it's just. It, it's not it, easy. No, you can't, you can't sell them because people don't want to take these things on. And again, depending on the it. value of your, of your property, of your rental, um, or, of your investment property, again, are you going to then hit that bracket of the 800,000 to yeah. 3 million where actually who's buying it? Exactly. Who's buying it? So mm -hmm. the circle kind of continues. Yeah. And also for all those landlords looking to dispose of their portfolios, what landlords are there to pick those up? If you remember back in the day, we had so many people buying flats even without seeing them just yeah. to add them to their portfolio. Yeah. And if those if those sort of if those uh, landlords are now selling off, who's actually picking them up? So you're going to end up with sort of an influx of one beds in, in London not mm -hmm. selling. The the crazy thing to think is that even if someone offers you the deal of the century, and you still are having to acquire the property with the aid of mortgage finance you still have to really think twice as to whether or not you can afford it yeah. because the rates are so high that even if you know you're getting a steal on the acquisition price, yeah. you have to think twice about that's it. Right. Um, we, we, and that's a crazy market to be in. It really is. And um, a lot of buildings these days um, have very high service charges as well. Yeah. And you've got to add that onto your mortgage costs as well. Absolutely. Uh, we've got currently got a buyer who we think is getting a very good deal on an apartment, um, but the service charges are are high. I mean, they'll probably come down when energy costs eventually, hopefully drop. Um, but uh, that is something it's that you have to consider general, on a monthly basis. General right? increase in the market. Yeah. Everything is costing more. Yeah. I know we're here talking about property, but you know, if we're if we're being realistic, the cost yeah. of everything is going up. Absolutely. And so if you couple the, the cost of the mortgage rates and then the service charges are going up, yeah. you know, it all creates a picture of actually it, it's at the moment, I feel it's paralyzing the market. Yeah. So sadly, the trend at the moment is people are just watching the market and and they're they're standing still yeah and when when you have got um deals that are that are under offer as agents you you want to get them through as soon as possible which brings me to my next question marsh can you tell us more about the elusive attended exchange and what it what it takes to how much more does it cost how do you are there times when you when you can't have an attended exchange for example is it, if it's a leasehold or freehold or what why don't more people do attended exchanges okay so let's let's break that down yeah what is an attended exchange yes. first of all attended exchange is the term that's often used for a scenario where everyone drops what they're doing the two lawyers meet together and they literally hash it all out in the space of one day and just get to the stage where by the end of the day they've done all the work that they need to do where they're comfortable and their client is comfortable to commit to the acquisition historically pre technology and emails and things being PDF'd within 10 minutes and all the rest of it, it used to be a case of physically going to the office. So you, you know, buyer's lawyer would pick up their stuff, often go with like a trainee or whatever, and they would go through and they would be put in a meeting room and they'll say, here you go, here's all the paperwork that you need that we have available for this property. And you would review that paperwork then and there, you'd raise your inquiries like you would, but then they would be sitting in front of you and they would answer the questions and you'd effectively accelerate the transaction to the point where at the end of the day or whenever you've had your discussions, you were able to leave the office having exchanged contracts. So that's that's the idea behind an attended exchange. Yeah. These days, it's far less common. Uh, 
it does happen, but it's quite rare. I would say there's less of a need to physically move to someone's office because mm -hmm. now within five seconds, the whole you know pack is sent to you by email and you can review that in the comfort of your own office. So yeah. there's no need to actually do that uh, anymore. Um, the truth is, is that I don't think that they're happening as often because typically that would happen in an extremely buoyant market. So there's got to be a reason you're why you're doing it. You're competing. Buy yeah, right. that's the only reason, you know, you're offering someone or, you know, you're the second buyer that's coming in and you're gazumping. You know, there's there's all that kind of but Marshall, play in the background. But if it can be done so quickly, why aren't all deals done like that? Uh, good question. I think ultimately that comes down to the availability of information and how prepared people are at the point where they're presenting it to the other side. So one of the things that we often have spoken about especially when you've got your seller's clients, I often say to you, well, look, even before we find a buyer, let's connect together, put them in touch with me, let me meet them, let me onboard them, and we can discuss AML as a separate question because I'm sure that's going to come up. But yeah. let's get everything as ready as we can so that when we do find a buyer, we can pull that trigger really quickly. And that's also a good thing for the seller because a, if the seller is then ready and we go through all the paperwork and, oh, I, I, I left my file in over here, and we can get all that stuff done because often there's a real uh, time period in the beginning of the transaction where there's a lag while, while the sellers are coordinating and collating all their information mm. and documents. So what I've often recommended to you guys, and we've done it successfully, mm. is get everything ready so that the second we find a buyer, we can pull that trigger and send that yeah. email. And... The truth is, is that that also helps test the credibility of our buyer. Because if within 10 minutes of us agreeing the deal and circulating the sales memorandum, the buyer's lawyers have all the paperwork yeah. and they're slow to react or it's taking them a, f a good few days or a week to, right. to deal with it. Well, we could say, well, hold on. You yeah. said that you were going to move really quickly. We've yeah. given you everything. Yeah. So I think to answer your question, I think it depends on the availability of the information. So typically where there's an attended exchange, um, it's not outside the realms of possibility, for example, that they've already got the searches. Yeah. So typically searches tend to take seven to 15 working days, depending on which local authority you happen to be dealing with. And so if you've got provision of all that information there, then actually you can move it forward very quickly. And, yeah. and again, it depends on, on the speed of the seller's lawyers. So if we were taking this outside of the attended exchange environment. It's a normal deal. Yeah. If I send my questions over to the seller's lawyer and they take a week and a half to look at the email and then take instructions and then come back to me, that's the bit that kills the time. Right. Whereas if we're sitting in a room or if we're, if we're committed to doing this within a specific period, then there's a lot more focus on it. Yeah. I think that's the difference. To answer your question about freehold leasehold makes no difference. Uh, it, it makes no difference to whether or not you can proceed with an attended exchange. But, but a mortgage obviously would 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 kill that. Uh, yeah, well, yes, I guess it would because most clients and my advice to most clients would be, if you're reliant on mortgage finance, I would feel very uncomfortable advising you to commit to the contract. Because if for whatever reason, anything happens with your mortgage application, mm. or the bank decides to change their mind, or as your client mentioned, yeah. you know, increase the rate or yeah. whatever, yeah. then 
that's irrelevant. You have entered into a contract with your seller and you're committed to buy on a particular day. Right. So I could never advise a client to commit unless they had a backup option as your client did. Of, yeah. Look, I've got the money. I'd rather leverage. Yeah. But my worst case scenario is I've got the cash. Got it. So if they can do that, then I think that's fine. But, you know, as part of a lender's application process, mm. most lenders will carry out evaluation on the on the property. Yeah. So clearly that, that can't be coordinated within a day. Yeah. So if, I guess that's the point, if yeah. your client is relying on mortgage finance, yeah. it precludes you from that process, I would say. Okay. And also, uh, presumably, this comes at a, quite a cost to do an attendant exchange. Well, I think, yeah, if you consider that the, the, the level of commitment and focus on all parties involved basically means that they've got to drop whatever it is that they're doing yeah. and basically sign off a day, yeah. that comes at a premium because... How much of a premium percentage-wise compared to your standard um, fee or a fee for X, X property, let's say? I would say at least 50%, Yeah, at least, yeah. if not more, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah, sure. And I'm again, not surprised. Yeah. Again, it also depends on, on the value to some extent mm. as well. And the other thing that people don't often realize is that not every lawyer can do every deal. And what I mean by that is if the value of the asset is so high the lawyer's got to have significant level of professional indemnity cover to be able to carry that level of transaction. Yeah. Good point. Insurance is very, very expensive. Yeah. It's a massive, massive overhead in any law firm's, you know, uh, balance sheet. And okay. so not every law lawyer or law firm can transact at certain levels. And that in itself on some level will follow through in the level of fee that's being charged sure. because that's a cost that the firm have to have. Right in order to be able to transact at that level. Got it. All right. So moving from oh. the sort of upper ends of the market, I was going to say, with regards to first-time buyers, Yeah. what advice do you have for first-time buyers? Uh, well, sitting here as a lawyer, I've got to say, you've got to have a good lawyer in place. <laughs> um, we can always go into the reasons why that's essential. But I think from a, from a first-time buyer's perspective, I would say that they need to surround themselves with a good team. Um, how comprehensive that team is, how big that team is, will largely be dependent on the, the price bracket that they're going into. So if someone's coming in the market and they're buying, let's say, 5 million plus, that's a big value. So there's arguably a lot more of a reason to make sure that you have a very good, solid team around you. If someone's coming in at a lower level, then that might not be appropriate from a cost basis. Um, but say, for example, someone was coming at a high value, they could, they could consider having a buying agent to help yeah. advise them as to, is this the right price? Is this the right value? Helping them locate and negotiate a deal. So, you know, it, it really will come down to where you are sitting as a, as a buyer. But just by way of general advice, I think the the main advice that I would have to say, which impacts most first-time buyers, is making sure that your AML, KYC, so anti-money laundering uh, documents, your KYC, know your client documents, are available and you've done a bit of homework to get that lined up. Because um, that's often something that ends up being a stumbling block. It's not something that you need day one. Um, so from my perspective as a lawyer, obviously I would need to have your passport and your proof of address and all that kind of stuff to open up a file. In terms of being able to receive any money into my client account for the deposit or for completion, we need to have compliance sign off. Now, my clients have earned their monies in weird and wonderful ways, and yeah. everyone has a different story. Mm. And it's making sure that those ducks are in a row, because sometimes that can take time. And especially, you know, you have some first-time buyers that are lucky enough to get gifts from, from parents or yeah. whatever. 
they might not understand that actually their parents might need to provide documentation or that's that, right. they will need to provide yeah. documentation yeah. to evidence their source of wealth. Yeah. And, so, and working in London, that can mean documents that are in a foreign country or absolutely. from a foreign country in a foreign language, which Correct. has to be translated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We as Asians have to ask that question as well in terms of source of, source of funds. Why is that, do you think, Marsh? Because why is it for us to ask when you have to ask? There's a bit of duplication there. I think the, the truth is, is it seems to me that ultimately the government have just decided we're going to cast a very wide net over anyone that's involved in this transaction or in a transaction to make sure that somehow or another, if there's an issue, someone's going to catch it. Right. Mm. I think that's probably got to be the, the general thinking because yes, you're right. We are ultimately, uh, we'll do our own due diligence and make sure that our compliance team are happy before we sign off on a client. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just one of these things, you know, the, with the laws becoming more and more stringent over the years. Yeah. Um, it's it's an interesting point to consider that actually the amount of work that I sometimes do to achieve compliance sign-off is not a million miles away from the transaction itself. And I know that that sounds crazy, but if you imagine the levels of money that's coming through and passing through our client account, mm. they're so significant that you know we have to obviously comply with all of our regulatory obligations. Yeah. And we've got to make sure that we're entirely satisfied. And yeah. sometimes that's really difficult. Um, we're probably going off on a tangent from a first-time buyer perspective, but I, <laughs> I, I think the point here is that AML covers two sort of tranches. And I think this is the common misconception that people don't really think about. So tranche number one is source of wealth. Yeah. There's a difference between source of wealth and evidence of wealth, right? Yeah. So evidence of wealth is I have the money, I'm good for it. Here's a bank statement showing where my money is that I'm going to use to buy this property. That's, yeah. that's element number one. Yeah. And most people think that that is it. Yeah. That's the thing. So yeah. most people think, okay, here, I've given you the That's bank statement. That's what the statement. seller wants to see. Yeah, the so seller wants to that see that they're good for the there. money, yeah. for sure. But the second element, which is the hard, harder element, yeah. is actually understanding where that money came from. Yeah. Right? And so that is intrinsically what we need to get to the bottom of. And what I say to my clients, this is the general sort of uh, guidance that I give them, is I say, look, everyone earns their money in different ways, right? You could be a successful banker, you could have been gifted, you could have had an inheritance, you, you've got a successful business. There isn't a right or wrong in terms of, if you give me this, this, and this, we've got sign off. It doesn't work like that. It's gotta be more individualistic. It's more relative to the individual client and each client is assessed on their own merits and the own documents that we are provided with. So what I say to my clients is look, share with me as much information that, as you're comfortable sharing, right? That's our starting point. Yeah. We need to understand what you're about, where that money has come from, and whatever you're comfortable sharing, send that through. Yeah. And then I can pass that to my compliance team and we can then be more specific if there's information or a specific document that might help us to achieve that sign off. Right. But trying to sort of say, okay, if you give me this, this, and this, look, some cases are much easier than others. Yeah. So for example, if we give you a working example, let's just say you happen to be a client and you're a very successful banker. And you know, we all hear with these bankers that they earn the earn these very large bonuses. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now let's just say you've got a banker that had a really great payday and he got a million pound bonus yeah right and he's saying to me that the 
million pounds that he's putting into this deal has derived from his earnings. So what I'd be looking for is not only the bank statement showing the million pounds in his account, but I want to see a copy of like his payslip sure. showing me that that's where yeah. the money has come that's a from. Nice, easy one. And then that's a that's the, yeah. that's why I gave you yeah. that example. <laughs> but that's the easy one. Yeah. So then we can see a flow of funds. Yeah. I always remind my clients, look, we're not forensic accountants. I'm not looking to establish where every pound and every penny that you've earned over the last 30 years have come from. Yeah. That's not feasible. That's mm. not what is expected. But what we do have to have is sufficient documents on our file so that if someone was to audit our files in years to come and say, actually, that person, you know, that client derived their money from criminal activity, we would need to be able to demonstrate that the due diligence that we carried out was sufficient at the time to say, well, look, here is all the evidence that we got that wouldn't have made us feel that they that that's where right. the money came from right. effectively. Yeah. And and that's kind of the background. Very good. Well, that's helpful because it, it that's always uh it's always a, a difficult um a, a difficult situation even when acting for a seller. Yeah. Know, for us as agents. Well, that's the we thing. We need to ask that question then as well. But where did you, the wealth come from to purchase this property in the first place? It sounds bizarre and it's almost very awkward sometimes very having, awkward. having a conversation as with a seller. Especially they're yeah. like what the hell are you asking me that? For? Yeah. Well, wouldn't it be better if there was some sort of uh, unified, I was going to say platform, but perhaps platform is the wrong word, but a database where... GDPR? Yeah, exactly. But where you, <laughs> where you, where you could do it. Imagine hacking what, that. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess that's a security issue, but if the government can't do it, then who can, right? But yeah. because we, I guess the bank asks these same questions, then they go and make an offer. We then have to ask the same questions and then they go to a lawyer and you ask the same questions. By the time they get to you or even us, they're so frustrated. Well, I think, look, the regulatory market, the regulatory experience that we all have just spoken about and, and have dealt with, I think we've got to a stage in our in our careers, in our industries, in the world, I would say, where that's become part of the norm. Mm. So I think, you know, if someone said maybe 12 years ago to a client, I need to understand where your money would come from, it would be met with resistance. And yeah. really, why Why do you need to know that? Here's yeah. a bank statement, here's my money, what's the problem? That's it. The bank were happy when I opened my account, that should be enough for you. Yeah. And maybe 12, 13, however many years ago, there was a degree of that because you would be able to rely on the due diligence of another professional. That changed as, as the anti-money laundering you know, regulations became more and more stringent. I think we're now in a world where it's almost expected. Mm. They've danced this dance before. Yeah, well, that's that's true. It's becoming a it's lot becoming easier than a lot it was easier. five years ago. Now today. it's almost yeah. like, look, if, mm. if, if you go and try and open up a bank account these days, you kind of get asked 50,000 questions before they'll yeah. think about it, yeah. which is very different to where we were many years ago. Right. We, and we, we London uh, is known as the money laundering capital of the world, supposedly, yeah. right? So which is, uh, this is which why, is why this is the exact reason yeah. why we are where we are. Exactly. Historically, yeah. lawyers were often used by uh, criminals mm. to launder money. Mm. And it could be as something... As agents. Yeah, well, that's exactly the thing. I mean, it wasn't even like you would be necessarily aware of it. So for example, I remember one of the examples that I was told was like, let's just say you had a buyer and they were negotiating a deal and they had agreed to buy a property for 800,000 pounds, let's just say. And they go through the motions and they send you the funds into your client's account because they've got to that point in the transaction. And then at the 11th hour, they said, you know what, actually we've had a massive change of heart. 
we don't want to proceed anymore. And can you send that 800,000 to this account? Yeah. And guess line. what? They get, they get the, the, whoever the recipient bank is, is seeing it's come from a UK based law firm yeah. and assume that it's, it's clean money, right? Yeah. Cause it's come from a law firm. Yeah. That's really why we are where we are. Interesting. Right. Okay. Interesting. One of the reasons anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Very good. Um, and, um, what I'd be interested, just going back very briefly to the to the um, the first time buyers question. Yeah, what was it like for you as a first time buyer? Very daunting. Did you do your own convincing? You're not allowed. Well, if you're um, buying with mortgage finance, which yeah. I was, yeah, uh, you can't act for both yourself and the bank. Obviously, there's a clear conflict of interest Got there. It. So no, you can't act for yourself uh, in that respect. But you know what I always find fascinating is that. I do this job day in, day out, and I have done for many years. And, you know, I pride myself on being the cool, you know, person in the transaction that brings the temperature down if things are getting inflamed. And it's all, it can often be a very stressful experience. And so I pride myself on bringing that stress level down yeah. for my client, right? Yeah. And the irony is, is that when it's your deal, <laughs> yeah. that goes out the window. Yeah. It's yeah. the craziest thing. I'm like, what would I, you know, I found myself overthinking things, overstressing. How do I negotiate it? Like it was the deal of the century, which it definitely wasn't. <laughs> but the, you know, that's the irony is, you know, you spend your day calming everyone down, being the, the cool, calm, collected voice to sort of say, okay, this is how we do it. I'm running the show. Everything's fine. Mm. But then when it's your own deal. So yeah, to answer your question, I found it really stressful. Yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting because I think that's one of the elements that people never take into account when they think about buying or selling a property or what's involved is that the involvement of emotions yes. in these transactions highly is, is almost everything. Because we have seen people do the most irrational things. And you were talking about anti-money laundering, you think, is this, is this is there a legal or illegal reason behind it? And nine out of 10 times, if not more than that, it's just pure emotions. People just don't know how to handle their emotions and they don't know how to deal with the situation, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. I mean, you've, you've mentioned doing the sort of conveyancing for your own property. Matt and I have done it as well when, in terms of buying our own properties and, and various other things. Well, and I've always been so relaxed, too relaxed, where, you know, solicitors said to me, Matt, I don't think you should be doing this or you should, uh, you know, you, you should be, ask for more information here. I'm like, no, 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 forget it. It's going to be fine. <laughs> House has been here since 1900. <laughs> be here for much longer. I'll tell you what I found difficult when I was involved in my own transactions was if I was, say for example, I was selling and the buyer's lawyer raised an inquiry, which I'm like, that's a stupid inquiry. And all of a sudden it was blown up into a whole big thing. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, like what's going on here? Yeah. And I'm I'm sort of powerless because I'm not really involved. So I just wanna you know, pick up the phone and say to the lawyer, you know, here's why this isn't a problem. I do this all the time. So do you. Let's be reasonable here. Yeah. But of course, you can't do that when you're when you're represented. Yeah. Uh, so I found that quite difficult I'll as well. Bet. Yeah, that must have been super frustrating. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Mosh, can I ask um, about technology um, in in a, in 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 a few ways? Um, we were talking about searches earlier. Why aren't searches done by the seller for a start? Why aren't they all, you know, paid for by the seller and ready to go along with, say, a management pack or something like that? I often, that wonder, I often wonder the same thing. <laughs> Generally, that's my advice to my clients. So let's just, again, break it down. What are searches? Yeah. So searches are effectively inquiries of all different agencies to make sure that as far as they're concerned, everything's okay with the property. So for example, water and drainage company, the environmental agency, the local authority. The local authority is arguably the important one or one of the most considered the most important because that's the 
the, the council that if, for example, there was a problem with a planning issue or an enforcement notice or someone's done something that they shouldn't do, that's the search that's going to reveal it. Yeah. Um, typically, as I mentioned, searches tend to take seven to 15 working days to turn around. It really depends on which borough. That's yeah. just a real broad average. There are some that are much, much longer. There are some that are actually shorter. Um, so I think typically... Uh, in the industry, and certainly from a lender perspective, searches are considered valid for anywhere between three and six months. So if it's more, if it's going to be more than six months old at the point of completion, mm. most lenders would actually say, well, hold on, you need to do new searches. So I think it really, in my mind, if I'm speaking to a new client, say you were kind enough to recommend me a seller, and you said, look, we haven't found a buyer yet, but they want to speak to you, they want to get their ducks in a row. To me, that's music to my ears, right? Because yeah, I'm, I'm then able to set it all up yeah. in a methodical, in a clear way. We can investigate if there's an issue, if there's, I can uncover a problem that may, they might not even realize, and we could start dealing with the problem before we found a buyer, or at least devise a strategy. So, when I speak with a seller, the first question I say to them is, look, how motivated are you to sell? And that's not prying into their business. It's more a case of, are you telling me that whatever happens, you expect to sell this property within six months? And if the answer to that question is yes, I'm definitely committed. Because there are some sellers that are like, you know, if I get the right price, then yeah. that's a very different kettle of fish. Yeah. But if you've got someone that says, look, for whatever reason, this is a, pro a property that I am definitely selling, yeah. then I would float the idea of, do you want to commission the searches? And how much are searches? Uh, generally, it, again, it ranges depending on which local authority because they will have different prices. But I would generally tell clients to budget about £550 yeah. plus VAT, something like that. Yeah. Whatever we get charged is, is a cost that we pass on to the client. And it's can, a disbursement. Can they then sell those searches to the buyer solicitor? Um, so historically, yes. Um, the, a lot of people do that and people still do that. So yeah. that's, that's, I should start off by saying, yes, people do that. Recently, we've had internal discussions as to whether or not we consider that appropriate. And I'll tell you the reason why, because most searches are commissioned through an agency and there's an insurance behind there. So let's just say, for example, the search result said, the answer was no and it later turned out to be yes because there was a mistake somewhere there's an insurance policy behind there that you know thankfully i've never had to go down that route i've never explored it but that's the understanding is is that it's backed by insurance and therefore if you then go on to sell it then you're not necessarily going to have that cover Got it. Ah. and the concern would be is that we as the sellers of the searches could in some way be liable because yeah. we're providing that information right so the answer is yes but what we've recently changed is making sure that we add in a very big clear bold disclaimer saying look we're handing them over to you but we're not taking any responsibility for the content got it so yeah short answer is yes you can okay um and what are the, what are um private searches is there a, is there a, there's a much faster way of getting the searches is that right so that's yeah that's historically that was definitely a thing so private searches are basically someone saw a business opportunity they thought okay well local authorities in particular, because the, the other searches other than the local authority searches 
are ten, tend to produce results based on location and postcode. So those results are, are, are what's called desktop searches. They come back very quickly, 24, 48 hours. The ones that often take the longest time is the local authority search because it's specific to that particular property, to that planning history, to that property, right? So um, the truth is, is that what someone thought of is they thought, okay, well, instead of waiting for the local authority to provide that information, because it's a matter of public record, I'm going to go into the local authority, grab that information myself because it's available, put it together and give you what's called a personal or a private search. And there were agencies that were saying, look, their turnaround time is 20 days, we'll do it in eight. And but so it, that was the advantage. But it wouldn't uh, include um, the, the um, council searches. Well, it would include, so that's the local authority. Local so authority. all the all the desktop searches you yeah. would do anyway, because okay. that comes back right. very quickly. You wouldn't right. need to take private searches for that. Personal searches are often for getting that information from the local authority okay. quicker than they would get it. Okay. Danger is if there's an inaccuracy, what happens? Let's just say they got it wrong. People are human. Yeah. You know, I'd rather have the argument with a local authority than a company that's got that information. And actually what we've what we found is, um, is actually where they were a lot quicker historically, now there's a much of a muchness. You know, the local authority search might be 10 days and they might get it in seven. Okay. And I'd be saying to a client, look, for the yeah. sake of three days, just get it from the proper source. Okay. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't advise against, uh, yeah. I wouldn't advise to proceed generally with personal searches. Got it. Other thing to consider is not all lenders will accept personal searches. Okay. All right. So Very that's something else you've got to Is think. this an ongoing deal, Matt? No, no, no. It's like you're just, for your legal <laughs> advice. <laughs> you know, these are things where people throw at you. You said, oh, why can't they just get personal searches? You yeah. just, you know, it's always good to, you know, to have that. If I was buying my own property for the sake of a few days or however many days it was yeah i would want the information yeah. from the local yeah me authority. too especially just, if it's a difference of a few days i don't yeah. consider yeah. taking it's worth taking that yeah. risk yeah yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and then just sticking with technology, um, just very briefly, because um, we don't have a huge amount of time left, but where do you see um, the future of um, conveyancing and the legal profession in terms of the hugely um, rapid rate of um, of IT and AI and all things technology? The world is changing. AI. Yeah. The world is changing. AI. Um, I think it's going to have a, a big impact on the industry. I think it might take a little bit of time before we see it really impacting it in a meaningful way, but it's definitely already started. Uh, AI is obviously the hot topic of, yeah. of, the, of the day. Uh, and we're already speaking to different service providers that are offering us AI solutions to help simplify the process. So be it things like they will take a, the, the program will take a title so a property title from the land registry, mm -hmm. and they'll absorb the information from that title and very quickly output a report that you would then be able to check. So rather than you creating the report based on your review, it would produce that very quickly. Question mark as to how good that is, because yes, of course, that's very helpful and it will save time. Mm. But ultimately, if we're putting our name on it, we would be doing the checking of it ourselves. Mm. So there's a little bit of duplication because even though it's produced a lovely report, 
I would still want to check the title to make sure that the report was correct. But potentially saving you half an hour in your day. Absolutely. Yeah. So the other things where you will see a big difference is where administrative formalities need to be dealt with. I think that will certainly be sped up by AI. So certainly in the property game, there's lots of forms to fill in. For example, if you're registering a property at the land registry, so say you've just bought a, trans uh, bought a property and you're registering that transfer into the name of your client. There's various forms that you've got to fill in and those forms can be completed, extrapolated from the data that you put in. So for example, instead of having a, an administrative assistant do that, if we get to the stage where the technology is got to that accuracy point, which I'm sure won't be long, you'd be able to say, okay, here's the information, put it into that form. Yeah. So I do think that there'll be things like that happening. Um, I think blockchain, mm -hmm. that, that's a that's a real you know, a, a real headline topic in terms of where this could go. So I'm not, you know, a tech guy, I'm not techie, but mm. I understand blockchain to be a much more simplified process of, you know, you have all the information is already inserted into the system and it's a yes, yes, no, no, and the deal's done yeah. because all the due diligence has already been done. So, yeah. you know, that, that kind and of who, understanding. And who would cover the cost of that, do you think, if that were to be how convincing was done? Because surely that is the future. I would imagine so. I think it just develops on. I think. But it would would the seller, you know, pay to have everything ready to go, like they tried to do with hips, but didn't go sort of far enough at the time. I don't know enough about the technology to be able to answer that, and I don't. I don't know how it would work because, in my mind, you know, adopting my lawyer hat on. Yeah. A lot of it is opinion based, mm. right? So, for example, you can have a, a situation which we've encountered many, many times many where times. I'll look at a, a, a title and I'll say, here's the problem. And another lawyer will say, that's not a problem yeah. at all. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, you know, that's, that's or an issue in a lease or, you know, yeah. all of a sudden I'm saying that's, a, that's an issue for my client. Yeah. And they're saying, don't be ridiculous. That's yeah. standard. Yeah. You hear that all the time. Yeah. So I don't know how blockchain would deal with that difference of opinion. Yeah. I think there's got to be, it's almost like you've got to start from the beginning and say, okay, we all agree as a industry right. that this is no longer a problem. And yeah. this is the, you know, yeah. the the golden standard maybe. Yeah. I, I don't Although know. Although that's Turkey's version for Christmas, isn't it? Where, you know, who, who's going to bring that in because I, it'll put out people in their own profession out of work. It, it yeah. will do. I, will, I think there was a blockchain transaction that took place this year. Um, in real estate. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, I saw it on uh, Prime Resi, which is you know, yeah. the journal for, for Prime Residential, particularly in London. Um, I'll dig that up and we can discuss that more in our next episode, I guess. Scary. Um, yeah, thanks for is, not bringing it, it up it, here. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it is scary. Um, Moshe, we are almost out of time. Um, so two questions. These are... Um, these aren't trick questions. They're okay. just like on the sheet. Okay. I've been prepped for these. Good. Um, but having, uh, we've all worked what together. Sheet? What are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, we have worked together for over over a decade. Uh, and we met originally back in 2011. And for those listening, um, Mosh is not just sitting here because he's he's a lawyer. He's also a very good personal friend to ours. And there are a few lawyers that Matt and I have come across in all our years, 20 years of doing this, who are more diligent more up-to-date and who are as friendly as Moshe is when it comes to the conveyancing process. So not only a great lawyer, They're going to think I'm bribing you. They're going to no, think I'm That's no, too good. It is, it, no, it, it, you provide an unbelievable service, Moshe, and uh, you, your credit to the industry, and we wish there were more of you. Um, so Absolutely. on that note, two questions back-to-back. -back. Career highlight. Career highlight for me genuinely was when I became an equity partner. 
because that was always my goal. That was always where I wanted to be. And that was my target. That's what I, when I started working in the firm, I always thought to myself, I always wanted to be in business. In fact, when I was at university, I did a joint degree, law and business, because I wasn't sure which direction I wanted to go in. But I wasn't, I didn't have the entrepreneurial thing behind me to think, okay, I'm going to start my own thing or my own business. So for me, the achievement was getting to that stage where I'm an owner of a business and I have a real say in the direction in which this ship is sailing. Yeah. And for me, when I, when I got to that point, it was a real pivotal moment in my career because I also reminded myself of the fact that I started off photocopying. Mm. Exactly. It's such <laughs> you know, a great story. It's yeah. literally from the beginning yeah. all the way through yeah. to, to the end. That's wonderful. Uh, and the last question then from career highlight to personal highlight. To personal highlight, uh, I would say the clients that I deal with and the transactions that I work on, for me, they never cease to amaze me. And I know that sounds really cliche and a standard kind of generic answer, but one of the reasons that I love what I do isn't staring and reviewing a lease and a contract. That's not <laughs> that's not what gets me out of bed. For me, it's being connected with unbelievable people in the industry, but also the clients and the transactions, of course. So over the years, thankfully, as my career has developed, so have the transactions that I've worked on. Uh, where it's culminated in transacting on really huge, notable deals uh, for really famous, interesting clients. And to me, I just think, again, uh, using the same line as before, if I think about where, that, where I started to where I am working in the space and the people that I'm connected to and working with, that to me, I would say, is my personal highlight. <laughs> That's wonderful, Mosh. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks Mosh. for having it was, me, guys. It was thank really you. brilliant. And I hope that you'll come on again with us. For sure. It's absolutely. Absolutely fascinating. When you tell me that I don't have a job anymore. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, blockchain, it's great. <laughs> we'll be right next to you. Yeah, <laughs> this will exactly, be the job. Exactly. Um, Chris, you want to sign us out? Yes, I was just going to say that uh, for anyone who's interested in finding out more about Mosha and Seddon's law firm, we'll include all the details uh, at the bottom of this podcast. This podcast can be found on all your major streaming platforms, from YouTube to Spotify to Apple um, Podcast and so forth. For more information about Matt and myself, visit www.smithericksson.com. Please don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for having me.